0: I'm on a mission at my current role and for the rest of the time that I'll be working to make the best mental health service on the planet. And I, I will do that. So you can, you can mark my words. We're, we're going to produce something that's never been seen before and something that I think will, will hopefully have impact for years to come.
1: Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, My name is Mark Bonica and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of New Hampshire. Today's guest is Dr. Bill Hudenko. Dr. Hudenko is a licensed psychologist who has an extensive clinical experience working with children who have disruptive behavior disorders and autism spectrum disorders. Dr. Hudenko is also an entrepreneur and innovator in the area of text-based behavioral healthcare. care. In this interview, we talk about how he came to the field of psychology, his research into laughter, and how his love of technology and a desire for an iPad led him to explore text-based psychotherapy and ultimately set him on the road to being an entrepreneur in the field of behavioral health. You'll hear me say, wow, a lot in this interview because Dr. Hudenko's research and entrepreneurial efforts, especially now with his role at K Health, seem to promise real improvements in cost, quality, and access for healthcare. I hope you enjoy this podcast, and if you do, won't you leave us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you may be listening. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening, and here is Dr. Bill Hudanko. Welcome to the podcast, Bill.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So I saw somewhere in the research I was doing that you grew up in New Mexico, and I want to say I was my first, I grew up in New England, but my first duty assignment was in El Paso. And I used to spend a lot of time in Las Cruces. And I've always said New Mexico, if I couldn't come back to New England, New Mexico is where I would want to go. So you left New Mexico to come to New England. Where'd you grow up in New Mexico?
0: I was from Albuquerque.
1: Oh, Albuquerque. All right. So did you ever go to the balloon fiesta?
0: Oh, often. Yeah, it is. It is a a gorgeous place. And as you say, I don't think there's much better weather than you can have in Albuquerque.
1: All right. So, uh, so you did leave uh, Albuquerque and uh, went to the University of Michigan to study psychology. What drew you to Michigan and why psychology?
0: Well, actually, originally I was a pre-med student and that was because my family had several doctors, both my grandparents were doctors. I kind of knew that I wanted to do a, probably be a surgeon, but it was actually chemistry in my freshman year that dissuaded me. And that was because (laughs) at University of Michigan, the classes can often be very large. And I remember it was probably 800 students that were in that class. I would sit way up in the back, barely have visibility with the professor way down in the front. And it was my first experience not being in a pretty small high school as well. And so, I remember very distinctly that I, you know, sometimes I even fell asleep in class every now and again. Like I, I just was not very interested in chemistry. And then when I had my first exam, I failed. It was actually the first F I had ever gotten. Uh, it, it, and I am so proud to say that that was the the, the grade when I got out of chemistry, I got a C minus and it was one of the lowest grades I ever got, but it's still one of the grades I'm most proud of because I worked so hard to catch up in my class. Okay. But in a bit, what I learned from that was that after that class to go into medicine, I'd have to take organic chemistry and I'd have to do all sorts of classes that I wasn't interested in. And it made me start to wonder, is this the path I wish to take? And so as I progressed through Michigan, I noticed myself really gravitating towards psychology classes, sociology, philosophy, disciplines that I had really no experience with, but that I found fascinating. And that was the transition for me into, into psychology because psychology was, I thought, the, the practical discipline that allowed me to take all these things that i learned and apply them towards helping people, but just in a different way than I intended originally.
1: What did you, uh, what was it that like really grabbed you about, about the, the, I mean, it was a wide range of classes you just talked about. What was it that was grabbing you?
0: I, you know, I think it was mainly that I had not spent a lot of time thinking about social science and how and why people behave the way that they do. And that was just fascinating to learn that there's science and, and prediction behind a lot of how how we respond to things. And and so it really just was fascinating to me. It opened my my mind to this idea of, well, if you can predict how people are going to think about things or respond to certain stimuli, then you can also potentially intervene and help when you know that something is going to go wrong. And, And for me, I was also just very taken by the idea that psychology had such broad applicability to so many different areas and that even in medicine, like for example, when I I mentioned that that was what I was first interested in, there's so many ways that uh, physical health is obviously interconnected with mental health and that so many people, I'd say, even more principal concern with them is their mind as compared with their body.
1: Fascinating. So you you, you finished with the undergrad degree in, in psychology. At what point did you say I want to go forward with this and do graduate work in clinical psychology? Was that a did you decide that right away, or was you know what 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 caused you to kind of head in that direction? It sounded like you you were already heading maybe in a clinical direction with your vision of medical school, and then chemistry got in the way. Um, yeah. So <laughs> was it just a continuation well, of that?
0: No, actually, it was a it, it was a decision point where the other real passion and love that I had in addition to my interest in psychology was music. So I, I play guitar. I'd played since I was five years old. I was in bands in college. I was you know, very into it and interested in a career in music. But as I learned more about that, I, I found that it seemed to me at least that so many musicians were really quite phenomenal, but that success in music had much less to do with your ability and much more to do with things like your business acumen and your networking skills and a fair bit of luck and with that I, I figured music could always be something that I would have in my life but that perhaps uh, I would also really find it fulfilling to do this work in psychology so as I got closer to graduation I also had a theoretical question of well who did I wish to potentially help most and um I, I, one big division for me was children versus adults. And I, so I started questioning, well, would I want to work with adults? Would I want to go to a child program? And I was the youngest child in my family. And so I had zero experience with kids. I had never babysat. I didn't have younger siblings. So I actually started trying to dip my toe in the water. And I remember I, I actually worked with a bunch of two-year-olds in a classroom um, I was a summer camp counselor, and what I found from that experience was I loved working with kids. Uh, it was it was really energizing. It was it was fascinating. I I I really found it interesting. And theoretically, to me, I I was really more interested in intervening early in someone's life as compared with later, because as we all know, you know, many of the disorders and things that people struggle with have their origin in those early years. And so theoretically I thought if I already now know that I like working with this population, I, I could see myself really wanting to try to intervene early and prevent things instead of reacting later.
1: Wow. So it, so was that what drew you to the particular program that you went on to do at Vanderbilt?
0: In part um, because I, I did start to do some research at Michigan to get some experience in that area. And I actually was in, um, Arnold Samaroff's lab at Michigan, who is this very well known researcher who was looking at risk factors for um, young children when their mothers were depressed and, and what were the things that led to negative outcomes in that parenting relationship. So I got some experience doing that. And when I applied to a bunch of different grad schools, Vanderbilt, which is ultimately where I ended up going. That uh, that my future mentor was doing a study looking at the impact of negative emotion in in the voice of mothers on how that would impact uh, infant development. So there was just a natural connection between the work I had already done at the University of Michigan in this other lab, but with a different focus on vocal acoustics.
1: So, so let me ask you because this is that's an interesting. Uh, you you've triggered like a. <laughs> uh, Um, When I say like a a realization that I had when I did my own PhD work, which was I went in not knowing anything about any of the faculty and kind (laughs) of flailed around for a long time to find an advisor, which I don't advise people to do if they're going to do graduate work. So, so you went in kind of knowing this person maybe would be somebody you'd want to work with and continue on in that in that direction.
0: Yeah, much like you, when I applied to grad school, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, It's amazing that I made it in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I didn't really understand the process, you know. Later on in life, I was actually helped with the admissions process at Vanderbilt, so I, I really saw and understood how it works. So it, it's amazing, really, that I that I got in when I did. But it was the case that I I was drawn to this lab because it was it was focused on children, which I knew I was interested in. At Vanderbilt, they have a, a, an entire school of around child development, which I was interested in going there as well. Uh, but this research project really was right in line with what I had done in my interests, So it just seemed like a good fit.
1: That's neat. So did you know, did, did the program you went to was clinical psych? Yes. Yeah. So as opposed to yeah. say child development or something like that, right? So
0: yeah. So I kind of went in on a child track, but it was to get my doctorate in clinical psychology. And That's an interesting, I don't know if it's interesting, but it's a story as well, because I I knew going into undergrad that I was confident that I wanted to do medicine. When I got out of undergrad, I was in a completely different course, uh, moving towards psychology. So when I was considering what degree I wanted and what I wanted to do, the reason I actually chose the PhD as a path was because I wanted to have as many doors open as possible, because I thought well, in another five or six years, who knows what I'll be interested in? You know, maybe I won't even be interested in psychology anymore. So, the PhD program allowed you to, you know, get a master's after two years in case I didn't work out, I could have my master's and leave. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, of course, ended up really being interested and liked it. So, it was a good choice. But I, I have really taken advantage of all of the doors that have opened for me by having this degree because I have taught. Uh, I do research, do clinical work. And as we may talk about later, even, you know, am now involved in the commercial world.
1: What was the big draw for you going through the PhD? Was it, I want to become a clinician or was it, I really like doing research or was it a little bit of all of the above?
0: You know, at, at the time, I, it was really a dirty secret that I didn't want to do research uh, no. because in PhD programs, you know, they are generally trying to train clinical researchers. Yes. And I, I really thought that I wanted to be a clinician. So I kind of kept that to myself <laughs> a little okay. bit and went through the, the, the program. Um, and, and the real, the thing that happened for me was it kind of confirmed my interest that I, I actually didn't love the research that I was doing that much. Uh, And so by the time I got through Vanderbilt, I was ready to be a clinician and um, thought, okay, research actually isn't for me. The great irony, though, was that as I was looking for jobs, I was in Ithaca because my wife had gotten into Cornell. And so I knew I I was going to live in Ithaca. I was looking mainly at a bunch of clinical jobs, but there was a teaching position that opened up at Ithaca College and in the field, as you probably know, you, you know, if you get out of academia, it's very hard to get back in because it's just so competitive. And so yes. I thought, you know, I'll, I'll apply to this job too, because I hadn't done a lot of teaching. So applied to that job. As it turned out, I got it. I, I taught for a year and I loved teaching. It was just fantastic. And after, over time, um, I got on a tenure track position there and started doing research as well. And what blew my mind is I've, I finally realized that I actually really enjoyed research. The thing that I didn't like before is doing somebody else's research. Oh, <laughs> so okay. what, I, what I realized was when I actually got to ask my own questions um, and I got to direct the research and figure out what what I wanted to learn, it was really fascinating.
1: So we jumped over a little bit of your, your training. You went to do a postdoc at Dartmouth, which I think is important because that's where you are. Well, not where you are physically today right now as we talk, but that is where you're kind of based out of, right? Still. Correct. So what's what's a postdoc and why did you do that?
0: Yeah, so I did what happened was at the end of my PhD as as listeners may know you have to do a an internship in your last year of your doctorate. And that's very much like residency where you'd match somewhere across the country at a clinical site to get your clinical hours in. And I when I was applying to places and looking around, I actually, a lot of my thinking was geographical more than anything. I I kind of wanted to go someplace I hadn't lived before. I'd been in the Southwest. I'd been in the uh, Midwest with Michigan. Um, So I was really kind of looking a little bit at California, but also the Northeast. And so I, I applied at Dartmouth. I, I got that internship. I was there for a year, really enjoyed the clinical work I was doing mainly at, uh, community-based mental health treatment for kids. And at the end of that, when I was finally uh, free or ready to, to move on, um, I you can do a, an additional postdoc after that point, um, which for me, it was actually mainly a clinical postdoc because I still couldn't be licensed until I had my hours in okay. post-PhD. Post so I, I did the postdoc just as a mechanism to have the supervision and get the hours that I needed so that I could get licensed. So that was, it was mainly it, but I did enjoy Dartmouth. And I also, it, it allowed me to get into research and do other things while I was there that were interesting.
1: So if you had just been doing like a research PhD, you wouldn't have had to do the postdoc. You wouldn't have had to do the the, clin- the additional clinical hours, the, the internship, but because you are pursuing a clinical uh, the clinical side and ultimately seeking to get licensed—that's that you have—that's part of the process for for that for that field. Yeah,
0: it's not it's not necessary because if you were to let's say go to a hospital and work there, you could work under somebody else's license for a period of time. Oh, I and see. This just allowed me to get an additional degree, sort of, and that that it was in a at a place that I was enjoying, and it it made it it was a formalized way for essentially for me to get those hours in. Okay. And again at that just from the prior story I just mentioned at that time, I really wasn't intending to continue in, as a faculty member right many people do postdocs in, in research they do research postdocs because they need more publications before they would apply for a faculty' position. That wasn't my thinking at the time, so it was really for me more clinical than it was research
1: with the background you had the training you had done, you were qualified to work with any age group or were you primarily? It sounds like you were pursuing, particularly working with children, but but you would have been qualified to work with any age group. Not you wouldn't just just be like uh, limited
0: to children. Yes, yeah. Okay. So it, it is interesting in clinical psych that you you sort of can specialize. Like I was particularly interested in systemic therapy and children, uh, but I also had practice working with adults and and had been trained to do that as well. And And me personally, I feel I was just incredibly lucky because at the time that I went to Vanderbilt, I learned CBT from Steve Holland, who is one of Beck's students. And then I learned um, psychodynamic psychotherapy from Hans Strupp, who is one of the biggest names in brief psychodynamic psychotherapy. And it really advanced the field in that way. So I felt like I had a very strong underpinning for psychotherapy, which was really applicable to children or adults.
1: That's neat. Now, jumping back in, you were at Ithaca, your wife was there. So, so what drew you to Ithaca was your wife was at Cornell. She's also an yep. academic or is she, what does she do?
0: Yeah. So she, she got her PhD um, in natural resources and environment. So effectively, she, her, her research area was in human wildlife conflict. Um, mm-hmm. So things like you know, bears that come into parks or suburban areas with coyotes and sort of how do you manage the stakeholders of both the well-being of the animals, but also the people involved.
1: So it does explain why you're in, in, at Ithaca and you were, and you decided to go with the academic role. So you, you finished your, your postdoc, you've got this job at Ithaca teaching. You find you really like that. Are you also at the same time practicing, you have a practice on the side? Or
0: Yeah. So in those early years, I, I did study for and apply for licensure, got licensed. And then, which by the way, the EPPP was a horrible experience. And I it was one of those tests where after I took it, I was like, I could have failed or done well. I have no idea. How that <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully, I, I passed. And so I didn't have to take it again. But um, anyway, af- afterwards, I after I got licensed, I did start working at a, at a small private practice as an independent clinician in a downtown Ithaca area. So I was only seeing... I don't know, maybe five patients or so. You know, a, a fairly small caseload, but I really did want to keep my my skills sharp, and so I, I thought it was important that I kept working with some people.
1: So, simultaneously teaching, running a, 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 a small practice, or,
0: uh, and then also doing research. That's right. That's a busy. Yeah. that's a busy life. Yeah, it was it was a busy time, and especially you know when I started teaching. Uh, in, the, in the academic world, you, you talk about it as how many classes you have in the fall term and how many classes you have in the spring. And I was actually teaching, I think, a 4-4, which is four classes uh, in each semester. And I had never taught before. So I really, that, that period is a blur to me uh, because I, I had a very short period of time to prepare classes I had never taught before. And it seemed like every day I was just coming up with new lecture material and deciding what I was going to do for the next day. So it was it was quite a busy time. Yeah. Um, But, you know, it was a fun time, too. And and I I remember really at at Ithaca College, one of the unique things is there is no graduate program, but they very much encouraged all the all at least in the psych department, all undergrads had to do research. And so I had. A lab of probably fifteen students at one point that were all working on on these research projects. So it was a, a very uh, busy, bustling group of you know people and busy time.
1: That's a lot. I mean, between four class teaching, four classes, having fifty overseeing fifteen kids doing research. That's that's a lot. I mean, that all by itself is a lot. Was it? beneficial to you to was it helpful to your research to have them doing i mean were they like were you putting them on questions you're like air hey, I'm, I'm wondering about laughter in kids with autism you should go do that um <laughs> to, just as a and i make that reference because you did in fact that is in fact one of the areas you did do research in so which we'll yeah talk yeah
0: about yeah so the the story was that when i for my doctoral work um my my research lab was focused on the vocal expression of emotion. And as I mentioned, when I got in, we were actually first studying depression. And we had found that, for example, when mothers are depressed, they change the vocal characteristics of their infant-directed speech, which actually has a negative impact on infant learning. But after a couple of years of doing that work, I think we all found that studying depression is depressing. Um, and that... Uh, there were actually other applications of this vocal expression, and we actually kind of turned to positive emotion, which is where the focus on laughter came in. And interestingly, at that time, um, even today, there's a small group of researchers who actually study laughter. But there was, we were actually pioneers in many ways, uh, learning about some of the acoustics of what was going on with laughter and how we use it in all sorts of different social contexts and so my unique contribution was applying this to kids on the autism spectrum sort of learning how what what their laughter looked like relative to typically developing kids and again at the time we literally in the research literature, I, I wasn't even sure if kids on the with autism laughed at all like we didn't i couldn't even answer that question so i quickly found out that yes indeed they do laugh um, and some really fascinating pieces of that puzzle from the research that I did. So when I now back up to when I was at Ithaca, because of what some of the things I had learned, I wanted to take that research and extend it and find if there were ways that we could actually use positive emotion to promote uh, affiliation and connection between those kids and other people. So that's where that my whole program of research started.
1: Okay. Uh, So I, I, Skim through one of your papers, laugh, Laughter Differs in Children with Autism. And you found, and this is not a thing I'd ever thought about, but you said there were two types of uh, kids without autism exhibited two types of laughter and kids with autism had just one type of laughter. Can you talk a little bit about that? What does that mean?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, one of the ways when you do laugh, laughter research, one of the ways that we categorize laughter is, is by what's called voicing. Voicing a voiced laugh is one where you use your vocal cords to produce the laugh. And it would be what we would consider a prototypical laugh. So I will give an example. It's sort of like, ha ha ha. So you can hear I'm using my vocal cords to do that. An unvoiced laugh is one where we will not use our vocal cords. It would be things like snorts or chuckles. So if I go shh or use my nose, those are, I'm not using my vocal cords to produce a laugh. By, by analogy, it's sort of like talking normally right now or whispering is the sort of difference between those two. So w- interestingly, adults we knew, and even children routinely use both types of laughter. And in fact, up to 40 or 50% of the laughs that you produce during the course of a day are unvoiced laughs. So when, when we did this analysis of this play sequence that we did with kids to elicit laughter, which by the way was super fun creating what you call it the laughter elicitation sequence. We found that typically developing kids were producing, I think my memory serves up to about 40% of unvoiced sounds, whereas typically the the children on the autism spectrum were producing almost solely voice laughter.
1: Really? Okay. And what's the, like, what's the difference between the two? Like what, what does, what does, Unvoiced laughter express versus versus yeah. voice laughter.
0: Well, so the, the story here, uh, the, the way I made meaning of it anyway, is that listeners have a pretty strong preference for voice laughter. And we also had found that there is a, a more connection between a positive internal state of the person who produces the laugh when it is voiced as compared with unvoiced. And that is because... If you think about, you know, if I tell you a really funny joke, you will laugh and it'll probably be that, you know, ha, 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 voice type laugh. But if I say something and it's a little awkward or it's not very funny, you might give me a little chuckle just as a social signal to sort of say, yeah, I heard your joke and I'm still with you and I'm affiliating, you know, something like that. Uh-huh. So we think that there's a, some connection between your internal state and the type of laugh that you produce. So my read on the results that we got was that it's, I think it's likely that children on the autism spectrum actually don't learn as well to produce some of those more false signals of connection. And rather that they're just more likely to laugh when they feel good inside. So when they thought something was really funny, they were laughing and giving these really robust, good laughs. And then when they, you know, they weren't as motivated to grease the social wheels with those unvoiced laughs. That's so that's the, that's the meaning that we made of it. Um, and the, 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 most fascinating part I think was follow-up studies that I did where we actually had listeners, naive listeners, listen to these laugh sounds that were produced either by a child with autism or a typically developing child, having no idea what the context was just hearing laughs and then people rated them you know, I like this laugh. I didn't. And in general, we found that people actually preferred listening to the laughs of kids with autism.
1: Really? That's interesting. Were they listening to the unvoiced laughs as well as the voiced laughs, or was it just the voiced laugh? Am I using the right word? Voiced laughs? Yes.
0: Voiced. You got it. Um, I did an analysis that looked at both where um we just took all the laughs of kids, the typically developing kids, all the laughs of the kids on the autism spectrum. And uh, it it did include unvoiced laughs, obviously in the kids who produce more of them at typically developing kids. But even when I extracted and only compared voice laughs of the two groups, people still preferred the laughs of the kids with autism.
1: Cause I mean, just based on what you're telling me, I, I feel like if I, if you played me voiced and unvoiced laughs out of context, I may not be able to articulate it, but I, if the unvoiced laughs are primarily about social smoothing, um, social greasing, right. I should probably pick up on the fact that somebody's like giving me sympathy with this laugh, not, not actually thinking it's funny. Like they're just kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, which should make me kind of maybe a little bit uncomfortable almost. I, I,
0: I imagine. Well, yeah. And I, I think you're absolutely right. And part of, part of what we know also about signaling emotion in general is that people have a pretty fine-tuned sensor around genuineness. right? And in the evolutionary field, it's what we call cheater detection, which is the concept that we are looking for instances where people are trying to get something out of us without something in return. So if I'm producing laughs and they're very disingenuous, um, it's actually a turnoff to you. And that's that actually explains why, you know, we've all probably had those friends who like, you know, ha <laughs> ha they right. do that sort of thing, but it doesn't sound real or we don't think they actually feel good. And that tends to be actually very off-putting for us. That's
1: did you ever theorize why people would like the people, the the voiced laugh of children with autism was more appealing to? than the voiced laugh of, of children without autism?
0: Yeah, my, my hypothesis is really around the genuineness. Again, that I think that okay. the laughs that were produced by the kids in the autism spectrum were in general more genuine and people can pick up on that acoustic difference. And th- this is part of what I, I, I loved and found really fascinating about acoustics is just that the amount of data and information that is encoded Within, that, within an acoustic signal, even if, whether it's laughter or, or even just speech is actually quite remarkable. We don't typically think about it, but for example, you know, we, we can actually relatively determine things like age of someone based on a laugh or uh, you know, the body size, like is it a male or a female, like different characteristics simply by what's encoded in that audio signal. It's really quite amazing.
1: And is there a connection here to your fascination with music from growing up? Because you, you keep talking about acoustics. So I'm wondering, is that, was that a thing that just kind of carried over from your hobby hobby I- interests?
0: Uh, to some extent, yeah. Uh, I, I really do still have a real love and affinity for music. So I think that there was clearly an interest there in acoustics in general and, and what they, how they impact mood, how they can make us... You know, connect with people, how we can identify individual characteristics from one of those sounds. Like, you know, again, we take for granted the fact that you can hear somebody laugh down the hall and know who it is. I mean, that's kind of amazing that your brain is able to decode the the acoustic qualities to understand the identity of that person.
1: In my questions that I shared with you, I I mentioned uh uh Robert Heinlein. Um, I do are you familiar with uh his work at all science fiction writer from the fifties. No. So he's got it. Anyway, all I recommend stranger in a strange land. It's a great book. I read it. I remember reading it in high school and uh, the, the, the 10 second summary is uh, there's, there's a, the main character grows up on Mars with Martians and then comes to, comes to um, uh, to earth to learn about being a human because he's a human living on Mars. Um, and he doesn't, understand laughter. It takes him a long time to understand laughter. Uh, and his conclusion is finally, he finally gets what laughter is. And he says, I know why we laugh. We laugh because it hurts. And it's the only thing to make us stop hurting. And I just, as a person who studied laugh, that struck me. And I, and it's always kind of stuck with me. Um, basically his argument was the only time you really laugh is when something has gone wrong for somebody else. And I was just curious, what do you what do you what do you think of that conclusion? Is that true or is there a different range?
0: You know, I I I don't really think it's true. Okay. Um, in the field there's there's kind of two camps about the question of why we laugh. And the first camp is one of of what's called information transmission and it means that we are trying to communicate something with a signal to a listener so in the in the context of say language if i were to say the word cup you know cup has certain acoustic qualities to it and it signals to you an object that you would then understand if we're using the same language right in a similar way laughter might provide some kind of a information to you like i am ready to play or I I think this circumstance is funny for one reason or another. So there's some kind of information. The second theory is what we call affect induction. Affect induction is kind of my camp. It's the one that I, I think is more likely. Affect induction means that laughter probably evolved in humans in order to impact the affective state of the listener. So if I laugh it is really because I am trying to change your emotional state with that signal that I produce. So um, I, I want you to affiliate with me. I want you to, uh, I want to appease you potentially. I want to make you calm down or do something that will change how you feel. And indeed um, people in the laughter field suggest that laughter probably evolved prior to language itself, which might be one of the reasons why it's actually very difficult for us to fake laugh. Um, because it, it is so hardwired into our brain that, that it's, it's challenging to kind of volitionally create that sound. But I think there are good data to suggest that the affect induction theory might be accurate. And it actually helps to explain a whole bunch of circumstances, even like why do sometimes we laugh when we're uncomfortable in a circumstance? Um, very often because we're trying to impact the other person's state because we are trying to make, appease them or make them feel better. It also explains why most people actually don't realize that we are much more likely to laugh after something we say as compared to what somebody else says.
1: Huh? Because we're uncomfortable with that? No, because piece? we're
0: trying to, we're trying to manipulate the state of the listener. I, okay. And so that makes sense. even, even if you were to go back over this recording of what of, of you and I speaking, there's many times where you or I will say something and we will punctuate it with a laugh. So we'll say, no, wasn't that funny? <laughs> and I am actually trying to get you to change your emotional state and to affiliate with me. Um, which again, it, it seems consistent to me with this theory that laughter is probably about how we change others.
1: And that, is that why the kids with autism are not paying attention to that. Um, that part of the, of the use of laughter. Is that why their laughter is different? Is because they're not necessarily trying to manipulate.
0: Yeah, well, I think that laughter is, of course, very nuanced, and that the as we grow up, we learn all sorts of ways to socially manipulate circumstances, and almost all of laughter is non conscious. You know, if I asked you how many times did you laugh today, you'd say, "I don't know," at least a couple, maybe. But you know, people tend to laugh at least thirty to forty times a day. Um, Obviously, it depends on the person and context, but the the point is that you know I don't think it's a conscious thing that the kids are doing. It's just a matter of I I think it's likely because of some of the social differences in in those children that they they don't pick up on some of the social cues and don't use laughter in the same type of flexible way that somebody without autism might.
1: Yeah, just I mean it's just fascinating. Uh, 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 what what interesting research and so then this general area of positive emotion for connection. Where, how else did you take this then? In addition to laughter, what else did you do with it? Or, or how else have you thought about it?
0: Well, so the, the idea for me was that after I had amassed this knowledge that children on the autism spectrum produce these laughs, that people actually preferred listening to these laughs and that laughter is a very powerful social signal that helps us to affiliate and create connections with other people, putting those pieces together to me said, there might be opportunity for us here to build better ways for kids in the autism spectrum to connect with other people using positive emotion, Uh, because it's it's not something they have to learn. You know, they have it already, and it's effective at connecting with other people. So that last step of my research was trying to think about intervention and working on were there ways that we could build positive emotion into um, helping people on the autism spectrum. So ultimately, uh, that was sort of towards the end of my time. And when I was at Ithaca, and I had also started working and teaching at Cornell as well by that point. Um, and, And that's when my career took a 90 degree angle turn.
1: All right. So let's, uh, well, that's just really interesting. Um, So let's talk about that 90 degree uh, turn, which included returning to Dartmouth, right? Or or did it, so I guess that's what I want to ask you is, did that turn happen and then Dartmouth became part of it? Or was it, you went back to Dartmouth and then the turn happened?
0: Yeah, well, so I'm going to be completely honest about this, uh, even though it's a little embarrassing, which is, it was 2010. I was getting close to tenure at Ithaca, and I um, 2010 is the year that the iPad came out. This is why it's embarrassing, because at the time I was thinking, I I, I need an iPad. <laughs> sure, <laughs> the, I mean, we all it, do. It, right? it <laughs> seems it seems important. Like what you know, what what could I do with this iPad? How could it be used? And I started thinking about well, you know, actually. there could be real use for an iPad for uh, doing a clinical assessment of somebody um, because, you know, how we typically do an intake with a new client would be we sit down and we ask questions, but there's also a more structured way to do it where you go through sort of DSM diagnoses and ask structured questions. And I thought, you know, the iPad could be this great technology where we can hold the iPad, um, have a program that essentially walked us through the diagnostic decision making It wouldn't be that intrusive working with somebody like having a laptop and, you know, that being between me. So uh, I I say that's embarrassing only because, you know, having a motivation of just wanting an iPad uh, was kind of silly. But what it ended up doing was actually it did have an impact on my later career. And the reason was by the time it was 2010, I had actually developed a love for computers and in particular, a love for you know, I had taught myself how to program as because of all this acoustic analysis stuff that I was doing. And I just loved the problem solving piece of coding that, you know, you have something that you have an objective and you can code it 10 different ways to do that same thing. And it's whether it's efficient and if it works on different platforms and there's all these questions, but I just love the problem solving piece. And so, by the time the iPad came out, I was already kind of in the technology space, thinking about this connection between coding and, and what I, uh, the other work that I was doing, because I was coding on my own studies. I also had just taken some, like when I was at Dartmouth, I'd taken some freelance work where I was doing, I was kind of a database administrator for the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. Um, they, they learned I was a computer nerd and asked me to do some programming type things. So anyway, I started working on this project with the iPad to to basically make a diagnostic tool for clinicians. And that was around the time when I said, you know, I I can stay in Ithaca and and probably get tenure here, but I'm not sure that I want to stay here the rest of my life. And my wife had just finished her PhD. So we said, it's if we're going to move now's the time. And so we kind of looked around the country. And we had really enjoyed our time at Dartmouth and loved the outdoor aspect of it. And so a position had opened up at Dartmouth in the department of psychiatry. And I said, you know, I'll I'll apply. Well, we'll see how it goes. Ended up getting the job. And then uh, we moved up to Dartmouth. So the last piece where this connects with the iPad and the kind of 90 degree turn in my career was when I got to Dartmouth, uh, they again learned I was a computer nerd asked me to do some coding uh, for the website and so on. And I had some ideas about how to uh, essentially make kind of almost um, uh, electronic medical record for psychologists, which it seems crazy now in 2022. But if you can believe it in 2010, there really wasn't a lot of technology and mental health, right. anything that was going on. And so it was pretty novel. Um, I brought it to the medical school and I had, you know, was working on this iPad project and a couple other technology things. The medical school at Dartmouth said, buzz off. We don't have the resources to help you with this project. But as it turned out, the director of the clinic I was working at said, you know, these are some pretty novel, interesting ideas you have here about collecting information from patients remotely and making this record that could help us. So he said, actually, I have some investment money. Do you want to start a company together outside of Dartmouth? Oh, wow. So this is where things were, got weird because based on my personality, um, I was like, sure. Sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. <laughs> and okay. I But it was weird because I had no training at all in business. I mean, I, I can barely balance my checkbook. I had no understanding of what it meant to go into business, how much time it would be, anything. But he was the business guy and I was the tech idea guy. So I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. So in 2012, I think it was at that point, we started a company called Enchente. And I had, I coded the original prototype of the software. uh, But it, it's what started out as as one thing actually morphed into a different idea, which ultimately was a product It was called Proxy. And Proxy was about collaborative care for people who had mental illness. So, that we could extend the treatment beyond them just being in a session one on one with us. So, um, anyway, that was the, it was a big divergence from anything I had done prior to that time.
1: So, you had this idea of sort of um, a diagnostic software, which is, in my mind, is mostly algorithmic with some intuition. I mean, some intuition built in, right? I mean, a diagnostic process of like, all right, what am I, I'm asking you a series of questions, and based on your responses, I run down a different, a different algorithm, so that naturally lends itself to programming. I think. I mean, I, I'm definitely, I'm mm-hmm. definitely totally talking outside my area of expertise. But, but, um, but it seems to me that you know, based on my observation there. And then you had an idea of, of a medical record. How did all this become proxy, and what was? And it was like you said, extending the treatment.
0: Yeah. So the the, the as I got. More involved in the business side of things. Um, I, I actually, again, this is—it sounds so silly in retrospect—but I had been in academia my pretty much my whole life, yeah. and it really—I—I uh, I, I had this great epiphany once I started working on an actual company. Of oh, we actually have to make money <laughs> doing this thing. It's not just an academic exercise of something I think would be helpful. <laughs> so what started off is. This kind of iPad idea, and then a medical record, transformed over time to where I started thinking more deeply about how what, what is needed in mental health care. Like what what could we do that could really elevate the practice of mental health care? So that's where some of these early ideas I abandoned essentially, like the iPad idea and even the medical record thing, for this notion that I thought one of the biggest areas of 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 change, of benefit that we could do would be to include the natural support network much more effectively in the care of somebody with mental illness. Because typically, if somebody has mental illness, there's, you know, four, five, 10, 100 people around them who care and want to do something. But most people have no clue what to do. Right. And based on healthcare, it's very difficult to actually work with anybody beyond the patient uh, themselves.
1: HIPAA so, and all kinds of regulations exactly. and meant to protect yeah. the patient, right? And their privacy. Yeah. Okay. So, so mom, dad, brother, sister, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, all these people are being affected by the the patient's mental state and they're, and you're not allowed to talk to them or work with them.
0: Yeah. I mean, we can get a release of information to talk to people, but it's just, it's hard. It's, you know, right. there's big barriers right. around it. There's time constraints So what Proxy did was it it allowed the patient to communicate with you uh, remotely on this portal and then they could add natural support network members onto their care team who then could talk to both directly the patient and to you. And the trick was we were able to build a single release of information that you would send to anybody who joined the platform and then you could all support that person with mental illness along with the, the help of the clinician. So that so was the, you, the idea.
1: So when you say they could talk to the patient and to you, you, the provider, they could talk to the provider. They could talk to the patient. I mean, obviously they could talk to the patient, but yes, when you say you, they could, they could communicate to you, Hey, I'm observing that Joe is acting a little erratic or seems depressed or whatever.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Because you know, it, it's, It's invaluable, but rare that I would have access to somebody just quickly reaching out to me and saying, you know, Jim hasn't gotten out of bed for the past two days. Just wanted to let you know, is there anything I could do to help him? That's a kind of communication that we were opening up that previously was just very hard to access. Um, And it also allowed us to have more communication and more assistance to somebody during the course of the week instead of just once a day. I So once a week, I mean. once a
1: week yeah. for yeah. fifty minutes in the office. That's right. So selling this, though, right? So the business model—that's a lot more work for you as a provider, though, right? I mean, if you're like now, you're answering texts from the support network, texts or or emails or calls or whatever it is. Isn't that because the billing model is you come to my office, I you know I spend an hour with you and then and then i send a bill to your insurance company how did the how did you envision the the payment mechanism to work cuz like you said it's it's business you got to make it's got to make money
0: <laughs> yeah well i mean originally that the model was to sell it to clinicians as a tool that would okay. help them to elevate their practice but i will confess again that was my first company and there were some holes <laughs> there there it, there were some challenges on getting traction with it and getting people to finding that business model that really worked around, uh, around it, because of, as you say, some of the challenges around payment. So we were considering all sorts of things, like maybe payers might have some interest in it. Maybe it was a matter of reducing cost, or uh, that we could prove, let's say that there were fewer hospitalizations with more effective care from the natural support network. Absolutely. You know, that, that model, I, I I still believe in. I think it's a really important thing that we, where we could utilize help for someone that is available, but we don't tap into it. And and so that work I actually took later, because what ended up happening there was, I I was learning a ton about business and startups and all sorts of skills that I had never had or even thought about before, um, and ultimately one thing led to another. The partnership I had with my co-founder went south a little bit, and I ended up taking over as CEO of the company. So now I was really involved with fundraising and getting it to work. And so that was really between 2012 and 2017, when in 2017, there was a a company out of Silicon Valley called First Opinion, which was uh, a rapidly growing telehealth company for physical health that was sort of connecting... PCPs with patients via text. And they were really interested in doing a pivot into mental health and behavioral health. And so when I connected through some VCs, talked with them, and ultimately in 2017, they acquired my company. And so I came on as chief science officer to this company, which was then re- rebranded into VOI, was the name of the company.
1: Okay, that's fascinating. I, I, I don't mean to um, push back on. I think this is this, the idea of having the support network is, is amazing. I just know that, I mean, this fits into more of the value based care that we're talking about now. I would imagine a company, you know, an insurance company uh, or provider like um, Kaiser Permanente, where, they're, where they have a much more holistic perspective on the care of the patient, would, this would totally work for their model but it's not going to work for a standard fee for service, somebody who's operating under a standard. Let me say, I don't mean to say, it could work under a fee for service model, I guess, but it would be complicated, right? You'd have to find some other way of supplementing the billing or something along those lines, as opposed to a company that's collecting a capitated payment um, yeah. for a population, which I think yeah, you're I mean- working the VA and, and the DOD, right? So, which is yeah. along that same line.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think part of, the, part of the pitch early on was just that psychologists do a lot of this work for free already. Okay. And we were just making it a lot easier for people okay. because, for example, if you communicate with me via email about something as a client, I actually have to take that, log it in your record, uh, you know, part, make it part of your medical record. There's steps that actually take quite a bit of time for me in aggregate, when I have all these emails and communications. So what we had done is built this way where when you communicate about someone, it automatically went into the right folder. So that communication was like connected with that patient file. You could download the record. So it was pretty easy and streamlined. So it actually saved time in many ways. Um, And even those collateral communications, like again, as a child psychologist, I pretty much have to talk to the school and I pretty much have to get a release of information to talk to different parents and stakeholders. Well, this just allowed us to to connect all those people together where the communication actually took less time than me having to get on the phone and communicate things to a school, for example.
1: All right. Well, that's my ignorance of, of the practice. So that's, uh, that's really fascinating. So that, so it really is a time saver in the sense because you're already doing all this. You're just doing it in a more piecemeal process. So what, what your vision was, was to make it smoother, reduce the, Reduce the transaction costs, if you will. That's
0: yeah. Really yeah. Good. So in one way it was it was about cost savings and time savings. But you know, the, the thing that happened to me is I got the entrepreneurial bug. And okay. it it also it it helped me to to realize that my whole career objective was moving in this direction of being dissatisfied with the state of mental health in our country, just how it works and all the problems associated with it, and thinking about, is there a way I could have a bigger impact, maybe through technology and mental health, that would allow me to fix some of the problems. So while I cared about the cost and time savings, I was really looking at new models of care. I was thinking, you know, this natural support network thing is something that we should all be doing, and it is the way to help somebody more effectively than just working one-on-one with someone.
1: I mean that's that's really fascinating. I I, I read some um, I, while I was doing the research for for our interview. I read about VOI Reach. Is that what this program with uh, this this product has evolved into?
0: Yes. Yeah. So okay. what happened was um, when I came on to VOI as the chief science officer, we we sat down and thought long and hard about what area of behavioral health or mental health did we want to focus on? And so, uh, as, as you may know, or listeners might know, in, in business, very often it's good to have what's called a beachhead, you know, something that is, you're focusing on specifically instead of being far too broad, like I'm going to fix mental health. And so what we did was we looked at the field and, and thought, you know, one of the be- best areas of change and impact that we could really focus on was suicide. And at the time there there wasn't really a lot of specific products or things focused on suicide. And the work that I had done uh, with Proxy made a lot of sense as a tool uh, to prevent suicide. The reason for that is that I, I like to kind of break the problem of suicide into two pieces. One is how do we do a better job predicting if somebody is likely to harm themselves? And then the second problem is, how do we prevent it long term? What can we do to help somebody to become safe? And so uh, VOI REACH, what what became VOI REACH, which was really kind of proxy to begin with, was this tool where we we realized that the research on what prevents suicide would suggest that one of the most important factors that keeps people safe is having a support network around them that is activated and helping them. And so it was a natural connection because I had built this tool. It was all about building a support network around someone. And so what we did with Void Reach was we took that to the next level. We started building in and collaborating with folks on artificial intelligence. And we essentially built a tool where if somebody identifies as, as having a risk of suicide, they can invite natural support network members in who they think would be helpful to them. And then we actually automatically with AI scan like 200,000 data points a second monitoring for language that would increase risk. So if somebody would say something like, it's my last day, or I I give up, um, if they could automatically flag a clinician who's working, and we were actually able to develop a system where we could send an active rescue to someone within five minutes of a status change.
1: So... This, how, how are you capturing the, the voicing of this is my last day? Or, I mean, like, how, how, where does where this, where does VoI Reach reside, the, the program,
0: or how, how, where do you gather the data? So, the, the data all comes from the natural interactions that happen between the patient and the therapist or, or coordinator, whoever that person is, and then the natural support network. So, all those communications can be scanned using natural language processing to determine if there's sentiment change or a feeling, you know, words that are, we know through research are associated with risk. So if people start, we start, if the AI captures that there's some kind of change that's happening, that's when, you know, really the only way to effectively prevent suicide in an outpatient setting where somebody isn't in a, you know, an inpatient ward or setting is you have to be connected with them all the time, right? And so, this was our, the, fir- to my knowledge, the only tool that's ever really been developed to try to capture people in those moments when they are most at risk.
1: So, it, this, is it on, is the, is reach installed on the person's phone? Or is it yes. on their like Alexa's or, or, or smart yeah, speakers on, in the house or like, <laughs> yeah,
0: it's their on the computer. It's
1: on the phone. It's on the, yeah, phone. It's, just
0: on the it's a smartphone app and, and intended. A part of it is, is also that we know, That if, for example, if you're uh, suicidal, that you have a lot of people around you who care and want to help. But what will often happen is those people have no clue what to do. And there's two polarizing effects that tend to happen. One, either people say, let me know if I can do anything. And then they just proceed because they, they don't know if they should mention it or when you want help and they don't want to smother you. The other response that's typical is people smother. So they're like, are you okay? They reach okay. out all the time, which is often off-putting to the person as well. So for the first time, we were actually able to reach out to those people and to say, for example, you know, you're the friend of somebody who's suicidal. Here's three things to say to somebody who's depressed. And here's three things you should never say to someone who's depressed. So now you're equipped as somebody seeing that person and working with them all the time with language and tools on how to actually be helpful to somebody who is suicidal.
1: Are you, so I have to, obviously I have to agree to put this on, let's say I'm the person who has expressed suicidal ideation. Yep. I go to see you, my clinician, you say, Hey, we've got this great prod- product called way reach. You just, ins- you download it on your smartphone. Tell me who, you know, will set up your network. Do they also put the, app on their phone? Is that how that, like, do we have to have? Yep. Okay.
0: And then So those people would get an invite to, mm-hmm. to download the app with a text that gives them context for why they're being invited into it. Okay. And obviously a natural support network member has to agree to join the network. And then, uh, then they have this kind of small group of people. And again, you know, it, it, let's imagine again that you have a friend who is actively suicidal. Um, you're going to feel very, Happy about having a connection to me, the clinician, to ask a question uh, or get information about how to help. You know, like is this a risk? Uh, he hasn't been getting out of bed. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of questions you might have. Now you have a way to actually act on that.
1: How much of the information? So this is. I mean, this would be fabulous if I had a person that I cared about, which I've had in the past, uh, uh, who was who I was generally worried about uh, harming themselves. So I mean, I think this is a, sounds like an amazing uh, tool. So let's say I'm that person, I'm, cons- I'm now outside, I'm, I'm one of the support network people. If I observe something and I'm concerned, I message that to the clinician that's, that's in, in the network as the primary mm-hmm. caregiver. Is it likely that, I mean, is that person going to communicate with me or are they just going to say, okay, what else? So tell me what you saw or heard, and then you'll give me some advice yep. about how to talk to them.
0: Yeah. So they'll, they'll reach back out to you and say, okay. thank you so much for reaching out, okay. and letting me know, maybe ask you some additional qualifying questions. And then they will, of course, reach out to the person you're worried about directly. So that, you know, it's, it's never a natural support network member's job to keep someone safe. They're just there because they care and that, and they can provide an important piece of support to that person who's at risk.
1: Yeah. I mean, but it, yeah. I and mean, if it's my child or it's my partner, you know, I may feel that kind of is my job to keep them safe or, or to at least, I, I don't mean that literally. I'm going to feel an obligation. Maybe it's not my job per se, but yeah. I mean, I'm going to feel an yeah. obligation to, to care. Sure. Um, that's really fascinating. In terms of marketing this, I, I think I read that it was like the VA was in, in, using this or testing it. Where is that? Where is the product at right now?
0: Yeah. So, so what happened was um, over time, it, when we first launched VOI, we actually have two products at, at VOI. The first was called VOI Detect, which was to address that first issue I said of imminent of detection of risk. And the second product, VOI Reach, uh, to prevent suicide. Just one word about detect. So what we identified is the biggest problem in the suicide detection field is, is detection of imminent risk of suicide. So we know from demographic data, pretty much who is at increased risk for suicide. So for example, if you abuse alcohol, if you're depressed or have bipolar disorder, you're at increased risk of suicide. The big problem though, and the Holy grail, so to speak, is when would you act on that? Because suicide is a relatively low base, relatively low base rate event, and, and we're not very good at determining when you're gonna act on those thoughts that you might be having. So I had actually done some work and partnered with some colleagues out of the University of Vermont who had developed this tool called SERIS. And SERIS was very unique in that it was the only tool I had ever seen that had an excellent accuracy rate of of replicating expert psychiatric judgment, which is actually the gold standard for whether somebody is at risk for suicide. So they had done this study with an expert group of psychiatrists, talking with patients and asking the questions to determine risk level. They then built out this um, logic learning node from the study that was able to replicate the same questions that would be asked and have the same predictive validity as the clinician. So basically, just by way of statistics here, um, the classification accuracy was 0.98 relative to an expert psychiatrist if somebody was at high risk, I think 0.94 at medium risk and 0.97 at low risk. So it's essentially like having a psychiatrist in your pocket to ask if somebody's at risk for suicide within 72 hours. So to me, this tool is really cool. It was, it was based on some IP and technology around the scoring that was very locked in. And the only tool I think still today that is kind of validated for imminent suicide risk. So I partnered with them. We got exclusive rights to take their tool and build it out on this platform called Void Detect, where we could also have other assessments for mental health. And then we now offered this complimentary product suite avoid detect and void reach, which is kind of the, to my knowledge, only full featured way to prevent suicide using artificial intelligence mainly. So anyway, with that, what we first did was we went to healthcare organizations and hospitals and said, guess what? We, we, we can help you solve this problem of you're having people with suicides, um, it's, you know, morale issues for the staff it's patient safety it's costs all these things we struggled long and hard for a couple years in that field because a the sales cycles are just so long working with hospitals and b as it turned out we learned over time that suicide while an issue is maybe number 99 on their list of priorities instead of number one (laughs) so it was just very hard in a lot of systems. So what ended up happening was over time, I actually uh, was asked by the board to become the CEO of Boy. So I, I took over the company and I reshifted our focus more towards uh, military and corrections. And it was mainly because the payment model and the focus is so different. You know, they've spent billions of dollars on suicide prevention in the military. Right. And in corrections, it's a huge cost and litigation problem and so on. And that is, I think the time when we started getting real traction. So we got a deployment in this uh, Edwards Air Force Base and a couple of other installations, the Air and Army National Guard in Vermont. And we started doing these pilots um, and it was really a great success. Uh, the tool was super easy to use, Void Detect in particular. We got it into the Virginia Department of Corrections and started using it there. And recently, since I left, Voy, Voy also has now a deployment in 60 hospitals across, I guess, every hospital in Montana, which has the highest rate of suicide in the nation.
1: I mentioned to you I'm a, I'm a retired Army uh, veteran, so I, I, I know we talked a lot about suicide. We've seen an uptick of, sui- of military suicide, particularly with, the, with all the deployments over the last 20 years. So I can only imagine this to be hugely of interest to to the to the military and the VA, I would think. Um, mm-hmm. So you mentioned you left VOI. You're still involved. Uh, I think you said on the board, but yeah. uh, but then you founded Trust, spelled T R U S S T. So you said you had the entrepreneurial bug now. <laughs> yeah. It was it. I mean, why'd you decide to, to step down from, from VOI? Was it you really wanted to start something, you have a new idea and wanted to pursue something different or what was the motivation?
0: So the motivation there was actually that it, it, it came from research that, so during this whole time and even still today, I have an academic appointment still at Dartmouth. So I, I'd still teach there and do a little bit of research. And one of the few research studies that I was doing at the time uh, was actually linked with text-based psychotherapy. So around 2004, five or so, I was watching with great interest as some of the commercial companies out there, uh, like Talkspace or BetterHelp, some of those companies were starting to do text-based psychotherapy with clients. And at the time, 2004 or five, uh, there was really no research data to show that that would work and, and how you do it, what the technique would be, etc. And I was highly skeptical of Because there's just so much in psychotherapy we do that's based on tone of voice and facial expression and
1: (laughs) (laughs) laughter, right, like
0: all sorts of things. So I was skeptical. And so I got together with some colleagues at the University of Washington and um, UPenn, and we got funding from NIMH to do the first randomized controlled trial of text-based psychotherapy. Wow. we focused on some clinics mainly out of chicago but other a couple other sites maybe washington as well focused on on people with serious mental illness so these people typically had psychotic spectrum disorders or bipolar or major depressive disorder because we wanted to show proof of concept that even in some of this most challenging population that it might work and my role in that study was i was the really the clinical head so i adapted the in-person techniques to, to text-based, uh, mainly using CBT and kind of an illness management approach. I supervised all the clinicians. I read all the messages. I, I was very deep into how the, the clinical production there. And essentially a, a couple of years later, I was a complete convert after we got the data back because what we had seen was that in this, in this trial, we were seeing reductions in depression uh, based on this tool. We were seeing that people were, that their rate of contact with the clinicians was far beyond what we would see in person because they had this ability to text. Um, and even people at psychosis. We were actually seeing some reductions in measures of psychosis from the tools and techniques we were using. And to me, as somebody who is now in technology and mental health, I was, you know, I'm CEO of a company, kind of it was this spark where I said, you know, uh, I, I am so now devoted and interested in fixing mental health. And I, and I have this tool set that's kind of unique around technology, and mental health. I actually saw this as potentially the answer to solving the mental health crisis using text-based psychotherapy as compared with one-to-one, just face-to-face. So what happened was I, I took that study and the, the, we were really sitting on the only, results, the empirically validated way of working with people at text-based psychotherapy. And I got some funding together, a team together, and started a company called Trust, where originally I was on the board of directors I was still CEO at Voi, but we raised it up with a thesis that we wanted to become the world's experts on text-based psychotherapy and to proliferate that is the way to really reduce cost and provide high-quality care throughout the country.
1: Wow. Oh. So at what point did you step down from, boy, were were you seeing this starting to be validated? And you said, I really want to put all my effort into trust. Is that what the thought was?
0: Yeah, that that was pretty much it. And so in 2019, we launched the product. It was within six months, we had scaled to 35 states across the U S we were, you know, it was a kind of a direct consumer model and COVID hit. And, (laughs) you know, was That's actually, actually perfect,
1: isn't it? Like,
0: yes. I was going to say, you know, we, were, <laughs> we were one of the very few where there, it was actually a, a, a really great event for us uh, because yeah. we, were, we were sitting, again, on this technology and, and this approach that was extremely scalable for mental health treatment at a time where you had to go remote and where you know, mental health problems were dramatically increasing beyond the rates they were already. So we were just getting a ton of interest and traction, and and I just sort of decided that this was this was my future. This is what I wanted to do, and the likely biggest impact that I could have in the field of mental health. So I moved over to CEO of Trust uh, in 2019.
1: So we've got this text message, uh, text based uh, platform. It, it, you're texting a you're texting a provider. You're texting a licensed provider of some sort. I assume, right? It's yes. It, is that true? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, am I texting at a? Am I texting twenty four seven anytime I feel like it? Am I texting? Do I have an appointment to to text with you? How does that
0: work? Yeah. Well, so what we did was we set up some specific uh, rules or frameworks that allowed it to function and flourish. The, the basic rules are one, the client can text as much as they want at any time Two, the clinicians are uh, required to respond within 24 hours. So it's not synchronous. It's not like we're, we're interacting, but rather I will respond in general, our clinicians respond in three hours or so uh, on average to client concerns. So um, not, it's only Monday through Friday uh, and then We had emergency services link-outs through the app, but we didn't do it on the app because clinicians weren't necessarily there and working with someone. So one way that I describe this to people is, is it's sort of like having a diary that talks back to you. It's kind of like the idea of writing your thoughts, writing what's upsetting to you, going through that process, and then the clinician thinking about it, processing it, giving you feedback, giving you homework, giving you resources, things that are helpful. And it's really a shift in the model of psychotherapy. And in fact, there's some things about it that are just amazing that I love. And one of the biggest things is, is what I like to call the ecological validity of the information that we get. What does that mean? Because in the traditional model of psychotherapy, you know, I'll see you once a week. But what what happens with us is you'll have a life event, like I have a breakup, right? And then what will happen is you're really upset and you're crying and you're sitting on your toilet and you're texting us and you're saying, my life is over. I feel horrible. I'm never going to be happy again. All the things that we think in those emotional contexts. And we can process all that and work with you then instead of a week from now, because A week from now, you know, you've recovered already. You're thinking differently about the circumstance. You can't quite remember all those distorted thoughts you had. We now have this ecological validity of like, it's actually valid in your real world when things are happening. And we're just, we have much more touch, much more points of intervention over the course of the week. So I, I absolutely love that about the texting platform.
1: So it's, it's a, so I'm assigned to a provider. I'm assigned to you. So, so I'm, when I'm texting, I'm texting Bill. I'm not texting some random pool of providers.
0: Yeah. You're connected one-on-one with the, the therapist in the state in which you, they're licensed.
1: Okay. So the, yeah, that's another, um, so I get the same person, um, presumably all the time, unless they decide to go on vacation or something. Do you have, there must be some allowance there for yeah. The, yeah, Okay. Um, I guess that's, that's in the weeds. Um, so then you, you start expanding. So that's another issue of, of how do you recruit and train providers to, cause this has got to be different. There's got to be a, I'm assuming the way you communicate and do psychotherapy through text and potentially an asynchronous texting, you must be asking slightly, you must be asking the questions or providing responses that are at least some way different than if I was live in your office. No, I mean, or or to make it Um, effective, I would think. No, yes.
0: Well, it it uses the same techniques that we do with in-person psychotherapy. So, for example, you know, with cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of the work that we do is helping you to recognize what your thinking is and to help sometimes challenge those thoughts in a way that is more effective for you. We do that same thing with texting. So we identify how you think and talk about a circumstance. We then maybe identify some distortions that you have in that thinking and help you think differently about the context. So it's really an adaptation of the same thing that we do. Now, I will tell you again, this is just why I love texting and, and why I'm so strong on this is because in my view it is really a renaissance of mental health treatment right now because of texting. And the reason for that is because in the entire history of mental health treatment, a lot of what we do is actually a black box because you come in, you know, we talk about things for an hour and there's maybe a thousand different points of potential impact of what we would do. And, you know, is it how I smiled at you at a certain time or is it, you know, an insight that you had or something that I said, and we know that it works, you know, that in general, you come out of those sessions and things are better uh, if good therapy happens. But with text-based psychotherapy, for the first time, we're actually able to look at the language alone without any of these other factors. So we have millions of messages, and then we can actually start to analyze using data science and say, okay, when a clinician says it this way, in this context, we get that, this result. When they say it a different way, we get a different result. And, and what that means is we are actually building a science of, in, of language intervention that is so much more precise and better than we've ever had previously. Um, it, it is, it is, I think going to be the foundation of an amazing treatment service. And that's actually what I do today in a, now a different company is um, oh, wow. I'm kind of building. <laughs> well, yeah. the The last piece of this story, I should probably mention the very last chapter of this very long story, is that this company, Trust, was pretty successful. I sold it in 2019 to was it no not 2019 2021 right. to uh, K Health. And right. I am now the the global head of mental health for K Health. So in this role. I took what we built at Trust and we added a psychotherapeutic division to the company. And then I'm also head of the behavioral health services, which is our prescription-based services uh, in in the mental health division at K Health. And so what I'm building today and what I'm doing with all this is I'm kind of building uh, super clinicians, clinicians of the future, where the model is what I call AI augmented care. It means that we are actually taking the data science of all of this language that that is produced and giving tools to clinicians that they never had available to them so that they have insights about how patients are doing before they, you know, in ways that they never would. They have, um, you know, the the knowledge base of how to be much more effective with the text-based intervention and, and where we can monitor and understand that there's high quality in the service that we provide across all of our clinicians.
1: That's a, I mean, that would be an amazing feat that the idea of AI augmented seems to me to be the future for medicine just in general. And, 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 and it's uh, this is a really fascinating application of it. I mean, um, I, I've thought a lot, of, read, I think where I've read most of the diagnostic stuff, like with radiology and how they do, you know, thousands of images a day. And a AI is very good at picking up on things like that, but it still needs, a human touch to guide. And then maybe what you're describing is almost the other way around where the AI can kind of guide like, Hey, you've got an email, text from, you know, from Mark, he's, he, here, here's what his message is, what we've seen, you know, we've analyzed his last 500 messages with you and we see this trend with him and here's what we've learned from our Millions of interactions with all our other clients. Is this is the best response, or would you have like a? I mean, potentially you'd have a pull down of like five different responses. I'm just kind of imagining
0: that. That that is the kind of thing that we are building, and (sighs) and I, you know, I, I believe that we are years and decades even away from eliminating human beings from, you know, the interaction. Maybe Uh it's never a good idea for us to do that. Right. But my goal is. I want to give clinicians efficiencies and capabilities that they would never have without technology. And that's just because, you know, we have the benefit of, of understanding millions of patients instead of just the small sample of a hundred that you'll ever work with in your life. And that's where the real power of this approach comes from is that the, the technology is now able to give us insights and things like you said, you know, the system might flag someone and say, you know, this client based on their change in behavior or based on how they're talking is likely to get depressed in the next two weeks so that we can start doing preventative care instead of only reactive to problems.
1: How do your providers like it? Do they ever? So let me, well, let me ask two questions. One, one is I'm, I'm interested in how do the providers like it? Do I ever get on the phone or on a, on a face-to-face with you?
0: Yes. Yeah. So the The objective is to never you know put AI sent in fr- uh, uh, front and center in the application The idea is to augment the clinician's ability so it's it's very human it's very you know you're talking to the therapist and they're talking back to you um, right. it's more on the back end of how we support therapists to help them do even better and and like I said to monitor the quality of what they're doing so we 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 try to monitor very closely to make sure that therapists are being empathetic that they are using language in an effective way with clients. And, and so the, the experience though, and we actually also potentially escalate to video sessions when necessary with somebody as well. So that's not out of the question. It's just that the text-based intervention is so much more scalable to solve the huge shortage of mental health providers that we have yeah. in our country.
1: Yeah, I guess I guess my question was is it a is it hybrid like from the is it intended to be hybrid or is it intended to be purely text except when indicated?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, when people ask me about, you know, what, what is text good for, what is it not good for? My, yeah. my basic answer to that question is, it's good for most things, but not all. Okay. <laughs> so there are certainly some contexts where it's just not indicated or it might not, it might be not helpful. An example might be, if you need you know, to do exposure work Related to uh, complex OCD, like we can't do that over text. It's just not feasible. But you know, for depression, for anxiety, for low-level OCD, for supporting other aspects of treatment, I mean, it's it's a very flexible tool, and I think it's we're we're getting the reason we do it is because we, you know, I have my own research background, as I mentioned, about why I think it's effective, and just more and more studies are coming out demonstrating the equivalence of this approach to live uh, intervention
1: yeah how do the so now i want to ask how do the providers like it so if i've been i mean do you, when you recruit people to do this are are you finding people were already doing it and so this is a natural move in that direction or how, how does it work who, who works well with it from a provider yeah.
0: side you know is i mean at this point since some of these other companies have been doing it for many years now, there's a a group of therapists who have sort of taken to it and know how to do it. And we, you know, many of them come to us at K health because they're dissatisfied with some of our competitors in the space for a whole variety of reasons. Sometimes though we do get new clinicians who are completely, you know, this is a novel thing to them to translate their practice in this way. And we, we actually developed from Trust, my old company, the, the only national certification for text-based psychotherapy. So we amassed all of the best research and have this pretty comprehensive training to, to catch people up to speed. And I, I would say, I think in general, clinicians love it. And part of what they love is the flexibility. Um, you know, they love that they can be on the beach and be, you know, texting someone it's on their schedule when they, when they need to fit it in. Um, and frankly, there's some benefit also to having time to consider how you wanna to respond to somebody instead of having to, at that moment, think about what's the right way to navigate a situation.
1: The whole thing is really just, that's amazing. I noticed that there was an, another service that you are building, and maybe, I'm, and maybe I'm not understanding it. Conversation, virtual conversations with national experts on topics is that, but this is, is this an, and, and the, this was in Business Wire, I was reading this and it said the conversations look and feel like live text exchanges. So when I saw that it's, it says look and feel, I'm thinking they're not actually live uh, yeah. text exchanges. So you're, you're, is it, you're talking to an AI then?
0: So um, when when building out the model of text-based care, I, I started to realize that we're more or less at its infancy, that we're, we're starting to, to work on and build these kind of amazing tools to improve clinician outcomes. But, but that we also needed to have other things in the toolkit and what I would consider sort of a stepped care model for people even who couldn't afford maybe doing even text-based psychotherapy. So I, my team and I worked on a, a novel technology that we developed that today is called smart chats, which is on our K therapy platform, the K Health. And a, a smart chat was uh, this idea I had about how could we democratize access to high quality mental health care in a more automate an automated way for people who didn't necessarily quite need yet uh, the interpersonal interactions with therapists. So what, what I did was I went out and and talk to many of the world's national expert or world's leaders on a whole bunch of mental health topics. So depression, trauma, you, you name it. And we built this way of of quickly creating these automated conversations with them. So the analogy would be kind of like a choose your own adventure book. So if you remember those as a kid, you know, you'd read a certain place, you'd make a choice and then it would go somewhere else. So these conversations are kind of based on decision trees. Uh, it looks and feels like you're texting with this person. It's all in their own words. So we don't, we don't write any of that piece of it. We just create the logic. And then as you progress through, you know, we can embed audio files, video files, all sorts of things in it. And based on how you respond, they'll give you some information or different types of information. And what's so neat about this is that it, a single one of these smart chats, because of the branching logic, can often have over 7 million variations of how you would have that conversation with somebody. Um, so we call that smart chats. It's, it's another layer of our product that is free to everybody. And, oh, wow. and at K therapy, the app I was just talking about now, we, we actually have a third layer, which is our, our AI chat bot called Kip and Kip's job is to Kip is actually a therapy support dog. It's kind of a a digital avatar. It's meant to check in with you, engage with you, help navigate you to the right care, suggest content that's useful, so that we kind of have multiple ways for somebody to access mental health care, ranging from this support to uh, high-quality conversations with people you'd never be able to talk to, as well as even we, we add things like patient experience. So, you know, if you'd like to talk to somebody who was depressed, um, you can have that experience too with the smart chat. And then our highest level of care is the tech space psychotherapy.
1: For the AI, the pure AI experiences or the pure, the, the experiences without the direct intervention, how do you avoid that being regarded by say the FDA as, as, providing care or, or you know, or FDA or, or that I'm thinking in terms of like a medical device, I guess it's probably not that probably, I mean, like, how do you, how are you distinct distinguishing how, how are regulators regarding that?
0: Yeah, it, this is a whole other great conversation to have because in general, the field of digital therapeutics is highly unregulated. And I think that we're probably going to see a huge change with that. In the coming years, for us, we actually don't really market the the concept of smart chats or the work with Kip as clinical intervention. More so, it's sort of psychoeducation. Um, the intent is not to give you CBT treatments, for example, with Kip or or something with the conversations, but rather just talk with you to guide you to give you information that you w- that might be helpful, so that we don't we don't really cross into that field of, of regulated space with the FDA.
1: That's interesting. I mean, it makes me think of like 23andMe and some of the things that, and, and those other services that, you know, when they first started, it wasn't clear. It took a while for regulators to decide, is this something we're going to regulate? Like we're not, you know, or not. Mm-hmm. I imagine you must be in something of that same gray space right now. Uh, just cause it's so new, right. I mean, the, the capability yeah.
0: and, I think everyone in the digital you know mental health or just health space is watching and, and, and interested in these very questions um, I feel like we're a little bit safer farther away from regulation but I think there's a lot of digital therapeutics out there that I mean, we saw the fir- the first FDA regulated app come out with paratherapeutics uh, you know a number of years ago but it really hasn't taken hold yet but I think it's it's good it's a good question, a good thing for us to ask is, should these apps be regulated?
1: I'm just thinking, you know, drawing the same parallel to some of the genetics testing stuff like the argument there was, well, we're just giving you information um, and you do with it like, hey, by the way, you have a 95 percent chance of getting Parkinson's or something like that. If you, you know, we can tell you that, you know, like it's in your genes, it's going to happen. But with with yours, it's I mean, just based on our conversation so far, it sounds like you could probably build something with. You were saying you had you know very high levels of accuracy for some of your services based on expert interventions that were basically like AI driven. So you could set, conceivably, you could set up a AI interview that would run a patient you know a person a patient you know maybe they're not really a patient they're just logging onto your site and they start going through and you could diagnose you could get a pretty darn accurate diagnosis and at the end of it you'd be like yep you have x diagnosis i haven't done any therapy on you or i haven't i mean but now i've diagnosed you Mm -hmm. could that I mean, that would, that seems to me to be a parallel to where like the 23, like these genetics testing um, kits got to, but your services aren't there. They're not doing that kind of thing. They're giving some guide.
0: Yeah. They're not, they're not there
1: on the non-therapy side.
0: That's right. Yeah. We don't, I mean, that it is tricky at K health. We have two apps, K therapy and K health. K health is, it does, it does have a, maybe one of the most advanced symptom checkers that's out there. So it, it's similar to what you're talking about where you can enter symptoms in and it will give you a, a diagnostic impression based on comparing it to millions of other user profiles. So yes. I mean, the basic answer is that that there's a fine line and we have to be very cautious and, and certain that we're using these things responsibly.
1: Yeah. Are you practicing medicine or not in this? Right. Mm-hmm. Really fascinating. So, I mean, I, I, so to, to kind of close up our conversation, where's all this going? What's the future look like for, you know, uh, augmented AI augmented behavioral health, or w- where do you see the future?
0: Yeah, I, I really do think that AI augmented care is our future. Uh, it's certainly in the next, you know, even 50 years. I think that human beings are so complex. And, and often, you know, there's huge similarities between us, but everyone is indeed unique. And because of that complexity, that is what makes mental health and behavioral health such a difficult field, it, it is because we have to really account for that individual uh, difference between people. And so I think that for some time, we're going to need people, human beings, to really uh, be maximally effective. At, at helping somebody else and but that the future especially of technology and how we make this a scalable thing so, so that we have enough providers to meet the demand is to putting tools in our hands that make us much more efficient and to add these capabilities that we wouldn't have otherwise so it increases quality but it also increases you know affordability and access
1: yeah that I mean, that really it increases the productivity of any one individual provider dramatically, right? If you can do just so many more patients and because that's a that's been a problem with healthcare is like one doctor, one patient, you know, uh, kind of, you know, how do we scale that? And it seems like your technology would enable kind of a breakthrough, uh, your tech AI in general, the augmentation in general would allow a scaling that has, we've been constrained by for since, you know, since people started doing taking care of each other back in the you know, right. savannas, or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so basically right. all of human history. So we really kind of have like this opportunity to uh, really shoot off and do a lot more. So um, let me ask you one you know, kind of one last question, very global. Draw a line from from uh, Michigan, you, you know, you as an undergraduate at Michigan to today uh, in terms of your career. I know you said a couple of pivots, but what's the underlying theme uh of your career
0: you know i think the theme is that i i have always been curious and always been you know loved learning always wanted to use what i what i can learn to help other people and in the end i have taken several steps back at different points of this journey and said what do i want to what i want to do with all this you know and, and I, it, it, it made me uh, make several choices, like to say, you know, I could be a professor and I could publish 200 papers by the time I'm done with my career, or I could, um, you know, see 300 patients over the course of a certain period of time. And ultimately I said, you know, I want, I really do believe that I can make a difference and I can do it this way and have the biggest impact. And that's, that's my hope is I'm on a mission at my current role. And for the rest of the time that I'll be working to make the best mental health service on the planet. And I I will do that. So you can, you can mark my words uh, that we're, we're going to produce something that's never been seen before. And something that I think will, will hopefully have impact for years to come.
1: Well, Bill, that's a, I think that's a great place to leave it at. I look forward to seeing the impact that you, that you make.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate your interest and time.
1: You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.